Light beer, dark money. Agree on something. Politics, culture, and the intersection of faith, freedom, and free enterprise. And now, live from the Star Worldwide Network Studios, here are your hosts, Light Beer, Chris Clements, and Dark Money, Sean Noble. Welcome back to another episode of Light Beer, Dark Money. I'm Sean Noble. And I am Chris Clements, a very gravelly... Today. Oh, yeah, that <laughs> so yeah. today we this is this is the ongoing and happy new uh, year happy Sean. new year happy new year it is uh, January 5th and today is the continuation of the we were wrong and <laughs> our guest was right <laughs> uh, episode we had uh, Rich Tao a couple weeks ago who had pegged this last election pretty well and someone who got it even more right is our guest today yeah, Mr. Simon. Simon Rosenberg. Simon Rosenberg nailed it. Yeah, he right. was uh, he was telling us that there was no red wave, and we kept saying, "Oh no!" <laughs> Even on Twitter, I was like, uh, "Simon and I totally disagree, although we're very friendly." <laughs> and afterwards, we'll we'll be able to say, "I told you so." And so here, Simon, you can live up to <laughs> the promise I made on Twitter that one of us can say, "I told you so," and guess what? It's you. <laughs> well, well and, and, and Simon's yeah, been doing a bit of a victory, yeah. victory lap too online. Well, it should. I mean, it's been great. <laughs> it should. It, it's been a while. Listen, I mean, this was a crazy journey because, I mean, in addition just to being, you know, a guy who does political analysis, I, you know, started going out and speaking to groups all over the country that wanted to believe that we had a shot, you know, and who were mobilizing volunteers and all the kind of grassroots work. So I, I also started my followers on Twitter exploded and I had a hundred million Twitter reviews <laughs> between the middle of, of October and the middle and the elect and right after the election uh, for, you know, for my hopium as Nate Silver called it, that I was giving to the, to the Democrats. But, you know, obviously as a Democrat, I'm very pleased with what happened in the election. Um, you know, I think that two quick takeaways and then I'll let you take it wherever you want to take it is that, First of all, I think there were, were really two elections. There was a, a bluer election inside the battleground states and a redder election outside. And we can talk about what mm -hmm. that means. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that this was a big pundit fail. I mean, in 2020, there was a data failure. Um, but in 2022, I think there was an analysis failure. I mean, the, the data that we were looking at, that we were talking about saying we didn't think there was going to be a red wave, was publicly available data available to anybody <clears throat> and um you know and a, a lot of people including nate silver and folks like dave wasserman from the cook report and others you know really got the election wrong and there's going to have to be i think you know there was a big discussion after 2020 about what to do to fix the data problem now mm -hmm. we need a discussion about how to fix the analysis problem which is in some ways a more you know it's a it's a more serious problem in some ways um because there was just so much data that contradicted that there was a red wave and it was all ignored, you know, by a lot of people. So, you know, it's been a fascinating election. And obviously, you know, you can imagine as a Democrat, very pleased with what happened in Arizona, still kind of shocked by the scale of Mark, you know, the scale of the victory for Democrats there. Um, but, you know, the Southwest outside of Texas has been a very, has been the Democratic Party's probably the, the we've made the biggest gains anywhere in the country in the last 20 years in the southwestern part of the U.S., and you guys are ground zero for that. 
Well, and we're, yeah, we we're, appreciate bring, being ground zero <laughs> for a lot of things. The uh, <laughs> election and, and, integrity, right? Well, democratic I think, gains. Yeah. I mean, it's just been it's uh-huh. been there's, a there's wonderful there, two years. There have been gains. I mean, obviously, New Mexico is is becoming bluer and bluer. Colorado has gone completely blue for the most part. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's that. That's been uh, you know fifteen years in the making. Yeah. Um, Arizona. Uh, I would not say Arizona's blue. I would say it's purple. It yep. remains purple. Uh, yep. I mean, we had we had a candidate problem, uh, obviously, because if you look at Kimberly E, who ran for treasurer uh, for re-election, she was just, just kind of mainstream, regular Republican, and she got fifty six percent of the vote. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, but then you look at uh, Carrie Lake. Uh, who has very leaned very much into the election denying and the Trump pro Trump side, and she lost narrowly, as did uh, Abe Hamada, and then someone who didn't lose very narrowly lost kind of big was uh, Blake Masters, and that yeah. was in part because uh, Captain Kelly was a much better candidate than Katie Hobbs in that regard as far as how that that election played out so speaking of which as we speak katie hobbs is is being inaugurated being inaugurated along with everyone else they actually were on monday but because it was a holiday um so congratulations to her and and all the candidates that's right who justifiably won although carrie lake is carrie lake is still fighting well she's out there saying that she's the duly elected Governor of Arizona. <laughs> so she is she is doubling down on the Trump Trumpian belief that this election was rigged, which is sad. Yeah. Well, sad. I mean, when you uh, we've said it on this on, on on this program, but when you when you alienate a key fact, you know, key factors of the electorate, you know, two or three weeks before the general election. When, when it's a winnable election for you and, and you lean lean into your base and not broaden broaden the base. Well, not only you you're lean into your base, you, you tell Republicans, I'm not interested in your vote. Yeah. Because that's what she said to people. Anyone who thought McCain was a good senator, she's like, no, well, you don't want me. And, and, and Simon, you know this. I mean, there's, there's a swath of, of, well, maybe there are still moderate Democrats out there, but... But moderates who you know looked at McCain as as someone they would vote for, who were who were rank and file Democrats. He won a lot of those people. Sure. Um, even even with somebody like a Kirsten Sinema going independent, you're going to find a lot of those folks who are going to lean towards her. Um, I, I'd be interested in what you see going forward, Simon, in terms of the landscape yeah. in Arizona and elsewhere. Well, the the most significant thing I think that happened in the election was that in the battlegrounds, the presidential battlegrounds, and now I'm talking about sort of the expanded battleground, you know, Democrats made gains in a year that was supposed to be a bad year for us. I mean, we did better in Arizona, Colorado, Michigan, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and um, I'm forgetting one other state. I'll think of it in a second. There were seven states where we actually did better in 2022 than we did in 2020, which is just an incredible performance. And I think that if you're the Republicans, one of the reasons I think you're seeing the Republican Party um, squawk so much about the election 
and be so concerned about what happened is that, you know, we improved our standing in these key battleground states, um, meaning that we go into 2024, I think, favored to win the presidency, in my view. I mean, obviously, a lot's going to happen, and I got a lot right in 2020. But I think that, you know, what we showed, the strength for the Democrats is that we improved in the battlegrounds. We show we also, I think what people don't really understand, and you saw this with Mark Kelly, is that the Democratic candidates, because of our grassroots fundraising, are raising so much more money than we used to, that we're now running much bigger campaigns than we ever did before. And those bigger campaigns are able to go in and do much more intense turnout with our um, episodic voters and the voters who are much less likely to vote, um, which we saw happen, you know, as we saw in the early vote, right? I mean, the early vote, we yeah. Democrats just crushed it in the early vote. That was a sign of organizational strength, right? Yeah. And in part because the campaigns we have now are two, three times bigger than they were a decade ago or 12 years ago. And and I don't I don't think really the comment the people who comment on politics really understand the significance of this. Because it may mean the Democrats may never have a drop off or bad turnout election again. Um and you know for a party that is has many more voters who are irregular voters as part of our base than Republicans do. This issue of turnout is a really big issue for us, right? And that's why we spend so much money. And, you know, we've embraced the early vote in ways that we didn't before, and we really prospered. And so our campaigns also were better than Republican campaigns in the battlegrounds. And uh, and obviously, you know, I think that as we head into 2024, you know, assuming that the economy stays on track, we might have a mild recession, but it's not supposed to be a big one. You know, Democrats will be able to look back at these four years and say, look at these investments we made in chips and in infrastructure and in climate and all the things, you know, you guys have seen investment out there in Arizona, right, that have come out from the bill, you know, the bills that were passed by the Democrats. I think Democrats will have an even stronger case to, to make that, you know, we did a good job and that we deserve to stay in power. And so, you know, I, I look ahead feeling really good about where we are. I, I also will say that I think the Democratic Party, and you guys know what I'm about to say, as a party, is very strong right now. Our, our next generation set of leaders, because part of what's begun to happen now with Pelosi and this sort of elegant transfer of power that happened in the House to a very competent set of new leaders for the Democrats. You heard Debbie Stabenow, the senator from Michigan today, announce that she's not running for re-election largely because she believes the next crew coming up in Michigan are so capable and talented, mm -hmm. and she's not worried about them carrying on. You know, Democrats feel right now, if you look at our party, right, Mark Kelly and Gavin Newsom and Jared Polis and, you know, the House members that survived the 20 and 2022 cycle and, you know, Re Reverend Warnock and Pete Buttigieg, you know, this is a strong party, right? These emerging leaders that are coming are very, very capable and strong. And so it means that, you know, we're going to be ably led, I think, for the next 10 or 20 years. So, you know, I think we've gone from having a lot of self-doubt and being, you know, feeling like we were going to get crushed. I think a lot of Democrats believe the red wave was coming too, not just uh, not just other commentators. But, you know, I think today, I've been doing this for 30 years full time. I think the Democratic Party is as strong today as it's been during my time uh, in this business. And so we go into this next cycle feeling good. Look, we all know from politics that things can change on a dime. And, you know, you got to, when things feel good, you got to, you got to let it feel good. You got to take a win when you get it, right? Because <laughs> you know, there's lots of losses in this business, as you guys just, you know, you know, right? 
Um, but you know, we are we are a stronger party today than we were in recent years, and I think um, we feel good. Yeah, you should. I, I I don't disagree with anything you said. Did the and that doesn't feel good to say as a as a lifelong Republican, but the but you're right that the Democrats have figured out. And this is the Democrats have had a bit of an advantage when it comes to the ground game over the last yeah. few years. Uh, it really goes back. I think Obama was the one who perfected this, yeah. and it's only gotten better. And Republicans continue to miss the mark on that regard. And Trump made it even worse yeah. because he started trashing the early voting process. I mean, Arizona Republicans owned early voting for. They, two decades. they owned early voting across the whole country, yeah. by the way. Right. Early voting was a Republican thing. <laughs> Democrats yeah. didn't do early vote. Right. right. I mean, Karl Rove and the direct mail guys are the guys that got Republicans habitually voting early to bank the votes early. This last presidential election was the first one where we really embraced early voting. I mm-hmm. mean, this I mean, this this midterm was we've seen a huge strategic change. I, I, I appreciate being able to talk to you about this because I, I just don't think this has been aired out enough. And in Arizona, for example, you know, the Repub- your Republican chair a week before the election changed her mind and started encouraging <laughs> Republicans to vote early, right? Too because late. they saw the yeah, it was too late, but you don't they get saw me the started pain. about our so called Republican chair. I know. I know. Not- I'm just saying even she, right, realized pragmatically how many votes we were banking and of how course. dangerous it was for the for the Arizona Republicans. And she changed her public position and started tweeting like crazy and doing public events around early voting. The Republicans now know they have a big structural problem. Right? That we have we have we have an enormous uh and I don't think that gap, I think even if the Republicans throw a lot of money at this, they're not going to be able to close that gap in the next two years. I mean this is this is an advantage that we're going to have you know, in the 2024 cycle, the Republicans will be able to potentially lessen our advantage here on the ground, but they won't be able to close the gap. It's going to take more than one election cycle because we've now had two consecutive elections, the 2020 election and the 2022 election, where we have leaned into the early vote. And and our what's happening is that our voters are are now understand, our prime voters now understand that it's part of being a Democrat you have to vote early. Yeah. And yeah. so and what that does is you guys understand is it frees up the campaign resources to go out and you know target lower propensity voters earlier in the process. And so we were turning out lower propensity voters for 10 days, Republicans were turning them out in the afternoon on election right. day. Obviously right. doing it for 10 days is a lot better. Yep. And and I and I and look, I think Republicans will I think they've already strategically figured this out. I think there's going to be a sea change, but it's one of the reasons why you know, I think 2024 Democrats have a little. I'd rather be us than them heading into into 2024. It's one of the many reasons. You know, what happens in Arizona and with with our with your incumbent senator uh, is going to be one of the most interesting stories of this election. Yeah, I'm and, interested in your whole take on, on on that. I mean, I'm sure you know Kirsten. I and, do, and, and Gallego's going to run. I think, course. right? I mean, certainly he seems like he's. You know, he's. They announced staff they hired today, and you know, I, I don't know what happens. You know, I, I don't I mean, there's a part of me which thinks she's not going to run again, mm. um, only because she's not really been acting like somebody who really wants to stay and loves the game. Right. And loves the business and loves she's not doing a lot of uh, 
you know, town halls and things with the voters, right? She's been, she hasn't been in the state. She didn't campaign for Democrats or anybody in 2022. I mean, her disdain for day-to-day politics makes it very hard for her to stay in the business, right? And and I don't, so, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. My, my, I think there's a very high likelihood she doesn't run again, um, but I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll defer to you guys, right? I well, mean, I, I, I think that's a, I, I think that's a legitimate uh prognostication i mean it, it the she would to run again as an independent she just i mean it makes it very challenging now obviously she f- probably felt like she'd be challenged running in a primary against gallego i still happen to think that had she stayed democrat and run against gallego she would have won the primary but that's that's just me i don't know internal democrat politics enough to yeah. to be good at uh, guessing on that, but um, there is a path for her as an independent. If Gallego does run, then he, you know the left will go his direction, and if Republicans nominate, you know, a Trumpy, then there's clearly a path. Yeah, the, the the middle path that she can she could cut right up the you know in the middle of the electorate is enough. You only need a plurality, so you know, thirty two percent, thirty three, thirty four, thirty five. That's definitely doable if Gallego is the Democrat nominee and Republicans nominate a hard right. Maggie. Yeah, the only thing I'd yeah. say about that is what gets hard for her is that gets harder in a presidential year than in than an off year. I mean, I think that, you know, with yeah. Biden campaigning in the state, the Democratic Party is going to be very unified. There's going to be a massive coordinated campaign. I think I think it. I think it's more that scenario is more possible in a non-presidential year. I think it gets very hard in a presidential year, which is why my set, my guess is that she doesn't run again. But I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what's well, going it'll on. be it'll be very. I mean, we probably will know in the next six months, or few so. days, few weeks, yeah. couple months. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. But 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 she has you know the ability to raise a lot of money. She has ability to. I mean, she's one of the hardest workers. That I mean politically that that i've ever seen and and she has um she's kind of garnered you know the, a lot of moderate republicans moderate democrats i was speaking of before really do like her yeah so that you know and i want to you know mostly like the the chamber republicans i would call them yeah and so they've 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 embraced her in in, in a way that they probably would not a like you said a right-wing you know, Trumpian Republican, right? If Karen and, Lake and certainly um, not Gallego. So there is, like you said, there is a path. It's, it seems like it'll how it'll transpire. The key, the key question, Simon, um, that we've had on this show for some time, and I, you know, I don't want to put you too much on the spot. But does does Joe Biden make it to the election? Physically, <laughs> mentally, emotionally, yeah. spiritually. Yeah, so because no, because what we're seeing, I mean, I am going to yeah. challenge you on this. What we're seeing is is the rapid mental decline of a, a once great uh, leader of this country, and it seems like Democrats are sitting by and letting it happen, versus saying, so you know I, what? Obviously, is, I can't I can't agree with that characterization. I, I understand you're not <laughs> going I, to, I, but and and I and uh, what I will say is this, right? That if he wants to run for re-election, I think he will not be challenged. I think he'll have a clear um, path where there won't be, I don't think anyone will challenge him. I think the the strong election, his approval rating is higher today than it's been in, you know, 
15 months. Um, I think there's a perception in the party that the way we closed legislatively at the end of 2022 was very strong and impressive. And so um, I think if he wants the nomination, it will be his and he won't be challenged. I don't know what he's going to do. And I and I will support him. I mean, if he runs, I will be behind him 100 um, percent. But I don't know what he's going to do. I mean, he's got a big decision to make. He's got to not just have enough capacity to get through the election, but he's then got to serve for four more years. And I think that, you know, the way that Pelosi bowed out, the way that Stabenow bowed out today, where she talked about how the next generation is so strong and she feels good and she feels like things are in good shape so I can retire. I mean, those those are messages that are not just being crafted for their own constituencies, right? I mean, there's clearly, you know, uh, a sense that, you know, and this is, this is what I just want to emphasize. I mean, my view on this is that if Joe Biden decides not to run, he's going to be able to say he's not running in part because he feels so good about what's coming next. And that in, that our success in this election made it possible, uh, our success legislating, our success in the election made it possible for him to feel that he could step down and let the next generation come. And I think if he does not run, you know, we are going to have a very vigorous primary. We'll have a lot of people will get in. There won't be any clear front runner. Harris will not be, you know, the anointed one. You know, I mean, she's going to have to earn it. If she runs, she'll have to earn it. And I think we'll have a really robust primary that will put a lot of new faces, new younger faces into the national spotlight in a way that will be very advantageous to us as a party. As I said earlier, because I really am excited about the people that are coming. So, you know, I think it's it's we win either way, right? We either win with an incumbent who's governed well, whose numbers are good enough, right, who has a unified party behind him, or we have a vigorous primary that helps, you know, this generational wheel that is beginning to turn in the Democratic Party. I mean, one of the biggest stories in the Democratic Party for the next few years is going to be the transition from the party of the Clintons and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and, um, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi to the next Democratic Party. And I think that that transition, I'm very optimistic about that transition, much more so today than I was even, you know, six months ago or 12 months ago. Mm -hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to see because, you know, obviously the Republican side, we're going to have a contentious process. Oh, just no without question. a doubt. Uh, yeah, and there will not be an anointing this, this time around. So it does. So that then kind of puts us on the spotlight of what's happening this week in DC or what's not happening. Yeah. We don't have a speaker. Yeah. Um, and you know, Trump has supported McCarthy and yet the 19 no votes for McCarthy. And I call That's it 19 because 20. Well, I put Byron Donald's at, uh, as just the guy who is, he's not really a part of that. Yeah, rump crowd. You know the Andy. You know we had Andy Biggs on the podcast a few weeks ago, a month ago, almost. And I went back and listened to that podcast because I had been a little bit frustrated yesterday. That look, McCarthy's been giving these concessions to the Freedom Caucus guys, and they're still opposing him. You know, are they moving the goalposts? But when I went back and listened to the Biggs podcast that we did, I mean he he was saying it can't be McCarthy. 
it wasn't just the reforms. He he personally was saying it can't be McCarthy, and he is stuck with that. And so that may not be the case where Chip Roy is or a handful of these others, but if you look at Gates, Bobert, and Biggs, for sure, they are definitely anybody but McCarthy. Um, well, and, and so, so, so I, I say all that because these are, tr- you know, very hardcore Trumpians, but Trump is supporting McCarthy, but they haven't moved that. So, you know, does this, this to me looks like a diminishing of Trump's influence, Simon? Look, uh, you know, this is don't, wild. don't gloat too much. On what's <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I'm, you know, the truth is I don't think this is good for the country. Right. No. So I'm not, I'm not. I'm not really in the in the gloating phase. I'm I'm I think our fear, you know, I used to say during my period about when I would talk about the election, I would say the worst possible outcome for the Republicans would be if we keep the Senate and they have the House of less than 10 votes. And I argued that this would actually be worse for them than us keeping the House. Mm -hmm. And because I expected what we're seeing now which remember may continue for the next two years. I mean, there's no, I mean, the concessions that McCarthy's making, even if he doesn't stay, even if he doesn't end up being the speaker, the concessions are weakening the speakership and weakening the hold of the, of the leaders of the Republican party over the, their conference. Mm-hmm. Meaning that the, the, the MAGA 20, whatever we call them, are going to be stronger now not weaker. Right. They will be more capable of causing chaos and dissenting and and preventing basic operations from happening, whether it's the debts, you know, the debt ceiling or just passing a budget, right? That we need to keep the government open and the country moving forward. And so the you know the fear that everyone has to have is that the possibility of these 20 taking steps that do enormous harm not to the Republican Party but to the country itself is actually increasing as we go further into this because they're the concessions that are being made are are making them more powerful and that's what republicans just everyday republicans should be worried about that mccarthy's weakness the fact that he brought this to a vote i mean it sure seemed that they thought the dis, the dissenters were going to be in the single digits not in the double digits they seemed surprised by the number of people who opposed him it seemed like mccarthy perhaps was operating under wishful thinking about what was going to happen here and that somehow magically it was all going to be okay. And and at the end of this, we're coming, the country's coming out of this weaker. The concessions that McCarthy's making have made it far harder for the House to operate uh, in a functional manner. That's bad for the country. And and so, yeah, I'm, I'm stunned. As somebody who's been in this business a long time, I, I think McCarthy is demonstrating in some ways publicly why it is that there's so little love for him in the caucus um, because he seems to be he seems to have just really been um, really blown it right on a, on a really fundamental level and I, I don't know what happens I mean I think certainly I what I wrote about yesterday and I know this is also possibly equal levels of wishful thinking is that there's some kind of power arrange, power sharing arrangement brought in where a speaker, a former, like Upton, who's a former member, comes in, where Democrats support this sort of, uh, this nonpartisan speaker, so that we can run the Congress without the votes of these 20 people. Because if if 
the leader of the Republican Party continues to need their votes, we're in a period of, of danger for the Republic. And because um, they're shown, they've demonstrated they're willing to do whatever, right? And so I, it is possible that whoever becomes the speaker, because I actually don't think it's going to be McCarthy at this point, but I could be wrong, right? Um, you know, that that speakership collapses in two months or three months because of they can pull the plug whenever they want, basically, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I don't, I don't know. And so it's possible where we end up by the spring is in some kind of weird temporary arrangement with a caretaker speaker that marginalizes the 20, allows us to make sure we can increase the debt ceiling, get the budget done, you know, some of the basics, right? Nothing fancy. We need an immigration bill. Senator Sinema has been a leader in trying to, you know, forge a bipartisan consensus. I think the president finally leaned into immigration and the border today in a way that, frankly, he hadn't really before. I think he's going to be visiting the border next week. This is obviously going to be a major priority. I think we could see a, bi- a major bipartisan immigration border bill pass, I hope, by the summer. It would certainly be good for Arizona and good for the country. So, um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I do think, though, that it would be wise for people not to put lipstick on this pig, right? Like it would be wise for people not to, you know, um, for to be honest about the gravity of what we're witnessing here and and not to pretend like everything is going to be fine because I just don't think that that's necessarily going to be the case. Well, I, it, I agree a hundred percent with that assessment. I can't, I, I can't find any issue with that. It's embarrassing for the country. It's bad for the country. It's bad for the Republic. You would have thought that, many of these issues would have been hashed out over the course of the two months in in a way that would not bring us to this point. But obviously these, these individuals or these rebels as they're calling them, you know, they're raising a lot of money too, Simon. It's all yeah, about the I money. Well, there's and a lot of and, that. and um, there's a lot of that going on right now, which makes even, even their complaints of McCarthy, although I have my own issues with him um, over time, you know, people forget that he was up for speaker before, and and uh, he got torpedoed because of some some allegations about some improprieties in his personal life. And we don't need to go into those. But that that in and of itself, all those years ago, has has developed a a weakness of his persona. And I think it, I think these individuals saw a way to exploit that. And to your point, they're going to the mat with it. And he may or may not be speaker. And even if he is speaker, he's going to be one of the weakest speakers in, in recent Well, whoever memory. is the speaker is going to be the weakest, as you pointed yeah. out, Simon. I, but I think I, that I disagree that I don't know that it is, it is an existential threat to the United States. Um, I think chaos is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, that ultimately... What's going to happen is these things will work themselves out. They usually do. Uh, and, and I think uh, it may be that you're right, Simon, that there's some type of temporary power-sharing agreement. But, man, that would cause just uh, be, huge that I chaos. That I does not happen. Well, do you know what's interesting is that there have been two states in the last – couple days, Ohio, I think it's Ohio and Pennsylvania, where Republicans and Democrats came together to elect a, a leader of the House that was not, that marginalized the far right in both states, where there was essentially a power sharing agreement. It's already happened twice this week. And the reason I raise that is that 
there is something they could do that could be devastating. There are two things they could do that would be devastating to the country. And they've already said they were going to do them. Right. And so we should listen to them and take them seriously. You had Biggs on. And, you know, as part of the demands from the rebels was that if you go back and look at their original document, one of the things they talked about is they're not going to sign on to any budget that doesn't eliminate the budget deficit in the next 10 years. Yeah. I mean, that's not possible. Right. That's not possible. There is no I mean, we could raise taxes. You have to raise taxes forty percent. Well, you have right, to right. do that so, and, and, so, and cut spending at the same time by thirty yeah, percent. Right, right. So that's not going to happen. <laughs> I read so the they've analysis. Already, they've, they've already put out a demand on the basic budget process that's not possible to achieve. They have all come out against the recent omnibus that was signed off on by the Senate Republicans mm-hmm. as being something they wouldn't have supported, and so part of their demands is that. They are going to demand that basically Joe Biden cut enormous chunks of the legislation that he just passed. And that's not going to happen under any circumstances. And so we're already at an incredible impasse that could take the country down because the government will shut down and they don't they don't budge. They continue to raise money. They do exactly what they're doing here. Right. And, you know, we go into default and, you know, the entire global economic system collapses. You know, is that possible? Yeah, it's completely possible. In fact, they said they're going to do it. So I, I just don't think we should really minimize the gravity here of what we're facing because it is the House of Representatives. This is a serious place. They have a lot of power, you know, and and they, it isn't, you know, Fox News and performative Republican politics. There's, you know, they have real responsibilities now, right? And if they don't execute them and if they choose performance over governing, they could do serious harm. I, I think that if if we could wall off, I mean, one of the things that have been discussed is that would the Democrats ever come over and back a Republican speaker? I think that the conditions for that would be that we would have to wall off the budget and the, and the debt ceiling debate from any of the ability for them to sabotage those two things, right? So I do think that's why there's this is a really consequential what's happening now, in addition to all the other things about dysfunction and can you run a party and blah, 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 which are, you know, are worrisome. And, and I think the last thing I'll say to you guys, cause you, this is your own origins as political people is that, <laughs> you know, perhaps this is going to help accelerate and loosen the grip of MAGA over the Republican party. Right. I mean, part of what you're talking about is that MAGA is now bigger than Trump. It's outlasted Trump. It's spread Arizona, it's spread, it's beyond, way beyond Trump at this point. And I would like to have the old Republican, I'd like to have the party of Flake and McCain back. I'd like to have a more traditional center-right, you know, conservative political party back. And so maybe this, the embarrassment of what's happening here is going to help loosen the grip of MAGA uh, over the Republican Party, which I think would be great for the country. It might be. It's The, the challenge is it's going to take at least two or three cycles. To, yeah, I to, think, I think to right. really kind of settle out, which to your point earlier, Simon, uh, is why Democrats feel pretty optimistic because the chaos within the Republican ranks is at an all time high. And, you know, we are divided as a party more than, well, far more than the Democrats are, oh. uh, but, but yeah. more than we've ever been. I mean, I think this, this, this is a bigger divide than the Goldwater Rockefeller divide. 
in the 60s. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think so? Oh, absolutely. Uh, do you, I really do that's think That's fascinating. So. I, I'm, I, I will defer to you on that because I've actually been trying to figure out whether or not what's an analogous moment. So, right? so because, yeah, yeah, that is a very interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. Well, because the, I mean, it's, it's, there's been a shift. I mean, the Rockefeller wing of the party was much bigger than the Goldwater wing back then. Um, and, and maybe, maybe I've got that a little bit wrong. Maybe it's still the, what would be seen as the Rockefeller wing is still a little bit smaller, but I mean, clearly not as vocal as the Trump wing or the Trump, the MAGA wing, let's call it. Um, but I, I, I mean, all you have to do is look at, at, at where, you know, the Trump endorsed candidates like yep. here in Arizona, yep. they, they, they lost. They lost because there were enough Republicans who said, you know what? I'm not taking anything. I'm not doing that anymore. And more, more importantly, well, not maybe as importantly, a ton of independents because independents are the second largest block of voters in Arizona after Republicans said, no, not buying that. And a good majority who probably identify as center right. You know, I'm going through through this in my head, and it, you know, today's MAGA Republican would look at Barry Goldwater as a rhino. He would. They would. They and, would. Right. I mean, I mean, well, it's just it's, because, it's unfathomable for me to say that, but it's absolutely true. And they, and the conscience of a conservative is still. I mean, it's the Bible of Republican politics. At least it should be. Well, it should be. And these but, and these people so, are destroying it. So let's talk about that for a second because I think it's really important what you just said because these are not conservatives. No. Right. I mean, That's the Republican exactly Party right. is no longer a conservative party. It's a MAGA party. MAGA's replaced conservative as the governing ideology of the Republican Party. Um, and, you know, Ron Brownstein, who's one of the best political journalists in the country, has done a lot of analysis of this. And he really believes that about 80% of Republican voters essentially line up with MAGA. You know, when you sort of doesn't, you know, and which means 20 don't. I mean, it's the opposite in some ways of what you would think. And so I think the Republican Party, I, I, I really think this idea that you've raised about the divide is really important because I do think there's almost there's two parties now. I mean, if we were in a parliamentary system, there would be a center right party and then there would be the MAGA party. There'd yep. be two parties. Liz, Liz Cheney is not in the same party as Matt gets, right? They're not, right. they're not any longer. And you're right. I think that divide is as big as any divide that we've seen in the modern era of American politics. And it makes it very difficult to understand how Republicans can win national elections because it, because it, it will take a very special politician to be able to bridge that divide. And I don't think Ron DeSantis, for example, is that guy. I think Ron DeSantis has really sort of double down his identification with MAGA. I think, I think, look, I, what I'll posit to the two of you for you to kick around for the next few months is, and you should get people on from Florida to talk about DeSantis because he's obviously a major new figure in the Republican party. Well, he was the bright I, spot in the last election. Yeah. But right. I think he made a big error. I think he made an error is that I think he made a red wave error. I think that he, believed that the election was going towards them more than it really did. And it did in Florida, but he, he became more MAGA as the election went on since the election. He's now talking about reducing abortion, you know, from 15 weeks down to six weeks. Right. I mean, he's moving more to the right. He's gone to the right of Trump on a bunch of things. 
And I think that's a huge misread of what just happened in the election. It may not be a misread of what happened in Florida, but in terms of outside of Florida and the rest of the country, I think Ron DeSantis has misread the national mood um, and, and will make it very difficult for him to reach you know, swing voters because he will, because remember in the battlegrounds now, you've had three consecutive elections where MAGA was rejected. And so the voters in those states won't need a lot to say, oh my God, he's one of those guys, Mm -hmm. right? He's one of those Republicans. He's not a good Republican. He's a, you know, he's just a little too crazy for me because they voted on that three times now. right? Right. And so that's the danger for DeSantis. If somehow he defeats Trump and Trump, you know, is goes in, you know, and plays ball and endorses him and, you know, unif- tries to unify the party. DeSantis still feels very MAGA to me. And and I and I think we will look back potentially as him having made, you know, kind of a, a the kind of mistake you make as a younger politician new to the national stage, right? Who's not quite ready yet. You know, he's like a baseball player in AAA, right? If we can use a baseball analogy, who's hit 30 home runs, but he hasn't yet made it into the major leagues. And I think DeSantis may have made a big error uh, in his transition from being a Florida politician to a national one, um, but we'll see. You know, I, well, could, I could be completely so wrong. About I don't. That. I don't know that it's an error. I think it's a it's a calculation that he's got to get through a primary and he's got to get past Trump. So I think he's probably not thinking the second or third step down. No, which is where you are, Simon, yeah. and. Uh, and so, if he were to get through the primary, get past Trump, I look. I, well, and it's going to be mean, a crowded I, primary. The only way that I can see Trump supporting DeSantis is if Trump decides not to run, and figures that's the only that'll be the way he can be relevant. Because if Trump runs and DeSantis beats him in the primary, there's no way in hell Trump's going to endorse him for president yeah. in the general. It's not going to happen. So the one way that I heard people have speculated is that DeSantis will have to promise that he's going to pardon Trump, <laughs> which, of course, will make it impossible for DeSantis to win the election, right? And yep. so, you know, this is, yeah, no, this is, thank you for laughing, because it's like, it's an incredible scenario. Oh, I Look, I don't envy the Republicans right now. You know, I mean, this is a very complicated, you know, Trump is a is a dark figure and in, in our history and, and in the Republican Party. I mean, he's done enormous harm to the Republican Party. And, and well, because I, he know, was I, never a Republican. Yeah. That's the thing that he was never a Republican. Yeah. Yeah. No. He, this has been a show. This has been a facade. The guy doesn't have any core philosophy. And yeah. I just, to, to watch people who I believed were true conservatives who cared about the Constitution Follow this guy and have undying fealty for him has just been the biggest disappointment of my life. Wow. That's, that's a big statement. And yet, um, many of those policies and many of those ideas we, that he supported, we support. Well, and, and that's, that, and that's the hardest. I know they weren't his, but, the, but it, that's one of the hardest things being a conservative right now and watching what Trump is doing. Well, but he because he made accommodations, right? He 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 changed a lot of his positions from the campaign. He, you know, and and became more of a traditional Republican once he got to Washington. He made accommodations for McConnell and some of the Republican agenda, right? You know, I mean, to his credit, because to your point, he didn't really have a core philosophy. He just wanted to be the boss, and 
So listen, I, I, I mean, I do think the Republican Party is on a tough and long journey now. Um, and, you know, for the good of the country, it is important. I mean, I, I will tell you that I think one of the jobs Democrats have is that, and I've been arguing this for years, is that we need to make it clear. We need to make MAGA and the extremism of the Republican Party central to our argument because Republicans have to feel that they're losing because of MAGA. And that's when the grip of MAGA starts to loosen. And I think that it that didn't happen in 2018 and 2020. I think it sort of did this time. I think there was a sense that, you know, the extremism, not just bad candidates, bad candidates is a cop out, right? It's much worse than that. Bad, bad candidates are the result of a bad party, right? That can't manage its affairs and and has been overtaken by extremism. And so I do think that, I think in Washington, I mean, look at McConnell, right? McConnell, um, on the day of this meltdown, <laughs> McConnell, you know, during this week of this meltdown in the House, McConnell's going out and doing an event with Joe Biden. Right. Yeah, I saw I mean, that. You know, and, and, you know, creating as much distance from himself as MAGA and, and what the Republicans in the House are doing as possible. I mean, it's almost impossible for Mitch to have sent a clearer signal about how he feels like he's in a different path now than the House Republicans, right? And so, you know, because they feel very burnt. They know that they didn't win the Senate because of MAGA, not because of bad candidates. So, and the candidates were bad because, in part, they believed in MAGA. Right. It wasn't just that they were bad candidates, right? And so, um, so anyway, it's it's it it is. I think the goal here has to be to not. Uh, we just got news that McCarthy's seventh vote just went down. Just went down. Right? Yeah. I, I don't see the number, but um, but the the important thing is that we the goal as a nation, of the bipartisan goal is to loosen the grip of MAGA. And I do think that one of the things for you guys to be talking about in the future episodes is the role of the never Trumpers. Liz Cheney came to Arizona, told Republicans, created a permission structure for Republicans not to vote for the MAGA candidates there. She went to Michigan. She traveled around the country. Bill Crystal's organization spent $10 million in the battleground of ads of Republicans looking at the camera and saying, I can't vote for so-and-so. They've just gone too far. The never Trumper movement has gotten bigger and, and it's more mature than it was, uh, you know, two years ago. You saw large numbers of Republicans endorsing Democrats in Nevada and Colorado and Michigan, Pennsylvania, right, where big, prominent Republicans did things that don't happen in our business, right, right. <laughs> where, you know, 150 Republicans who were serious Republicans, not just names on a paper piece piece of paper, you know, endorse Gretchen Whitmer in her race in Michigan, right? And so we've seen now Republican elected officials, prominent Republicans in many of these states, you know, align themselves with Democrats temporarily. It's not, there's not a permanent alliance, but that alliance, it's possible needs to be strengthened in order to shake MAGA out of the Republican party. And that's why it's going to be very interesting to see what Liz Cheney does. I mean, if we were in a parliamentary democracy, Liz Cheney would have been brought into the cabinet of, for Joe Biden, right? There would have been an embrace of Bill Kristol and the Never Trumpers, and there would have been a formal structural arrangement. We don't really have a mechanism to do that in our politics, but I think watch for that in the coming months, because I think Joe Biden made it very clear for his first event after in the new year to be with Mitch McConnell 
and the Republican governor of Ohio, DeWine, was a pretty important signal that he was sending that he intends to work with reasonable Republicans to get things done and to create further distance with MAGA. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot that the never Trumpers, as we call them, they don't really have a name, a real name, but I call them the never Trumpers. I think Liz Cheney and Bill Kristol and th those that fought so hard deserve a lot of credit. I think they created permission structures for, you know, two to three percent. What I think I talked about when I was on your show last was that, you know, this effort, even if it's just two to three percent of the electorate, uh, the overall electorate is a Republican who then not vote, doesn't vote for MAGA. That could be the difference between winning and losing in the election. Yep. Well, in Arizona, it probably was. Right. It easily was. It easily was. And yeah. So that's also played out all over the country, though. And, and so it, it's a fascinating thing to watch about what happens. I've gotten to know Bill Crystal very well. I'm now working with former Republicans or former temporary Republicans right, <laughs> in ways that were unimaginable for somebody like me. I mean, Michael Steele is my new buddy, right? The former head of the RNC, yeah. you know, who's uh, out there. I mean, imagine the former head of the National Republican Party campaign, you know, so virulently pushing people away from the, the Republicans. It's These are extraordinary events. And I, and I, I think that there's material here for us to build this into sort of a, a durable anti-MAGA majority that sucks the oxygen out of the of the room for MAGA and and helps restore sanity in the country. That's my hope. Um, but let's see. We got a lot of work to do. And thank you for what you guys are doing. I always appreciate the the sober and sensible discourse, despite being a show that has beer in its title. And uh <laughs> And, well, that's, and that's only because all great conversations start with. Beer. <laughs> yeah. I well, mean, even even President Obama, even President Obama <laughs> had the beer summit with Bud Light, yeah. I would ask. And and it made and made inroads uh, during his presidency. And, so and I will anyone say that. Who's worked in, anyone who works in campaigns know that free beer is very critical. Well, and here's, all, and here's the other truth kind of, of American yeah. politics. <laughs> it always comes down when you when when a when a. Um, uh, undecided voter goes into that voting booth or, or gets his ballot and sends it in his or her ballot. It all comes down to who would you rather have a beer with? That's that, that is the, that, that is the George age old axiom. That, that was W's superpower, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who would you rather that have was, a beer with? You know, that was W's superpower. Well, we we've done a lot of um, yeah. dissecting of never Trumpers and we don't, and we're running out of time, but I guess I, the only other thing I would, I would add is that the democratic party has its own issues. And, and, you know, in terms of ideas, in terms of it's, it's lurched to the left, it's lurched towards socialism. It's, it's got a problem with free speech. Uh, the Twitter files that are coming out in ad nauseum are showing that. So we all have our issues that we got to work on, on, on either side. Well, and that's, that's worthy of another show. We'll yeah. have to bring Simon back. For I'll come back. Bit. I'll come back. I'll come back for that one. Come in but, a uh, but, but I think, I think you've made some great, great points and great observations in your analysis uh, leading into the election was was top notch, and so well, I applaud and, you for and that. Can I just say one thing? Look, we're not perfect. We we got a lot of issues. We got, we're going through a generational transition that's going to be bumpy and challenging, and we've got a lot of young, headstrong members who have ideas that are different than mine, right? Um, but in I think that at this point, the the establishment and the pragmatists are prevailing, uh, and that's. And and that's the difference between us and the Republicans. The establishment of the Republican Party failed, and it lost control to extremists. That hasn't happened 
on our side. And and I don't think it is going to happen either, right? I I do think that, you know, Hakeem Jeffries is, you know, isn't well known, but he's very much kind of an establishment pragmatic Democrat. It it, it doesn't mean we've got we're perfect and we've got issues to manage. There's no question about that. But I I do think that I'll put our track record over the last couple of years. I'm very proud of what we got done. Um, and I think that the investments, the things that I'm most proud of the last two years is these three big economic bills, CHIPS, climate bill, and uh, the infrastructure bill are going to position America to be the leading economic power for the next generation. And, and you know, Republicans played a role in a bunch of that, not all of it, right? And, but on the infrastructure bill, Republicans were there with us and getting that done. Um, well, our so governor was lot. certainly cheering the chips bill. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and look, took a victory yeah, lap with with Joe Biden on that. Yeah, no, just a few weeks ago, right? Yeah. I mean, that was a hugely important bill for Arizona, and Arizona is going to benefit dramatically from all three of these bills. And we have to find a way of celebrating the fact that I think that the country, despite it all, despite COVID, despite January sixth, despite the craziness of our politics, some really important things actually got done. They're going to make things a lot better for America. And we have to allow that to be true in addition to all these other things being true too, you know? So thanks guys. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Simon. Hopefully I can come visit in the flesh in the spring. I'm yeah. going to be great it out for spring, for spring be- training. And it's always one of my greatest. And I go to spring training in Arizona, by the way, not Florida. I want to be very clear about that when I, well, when I do it. That's the only place really to do it now. Uh, yeah. That's where, <laughs> that's where, that's where all the great teams are. Absolutely. But Simon, okay. we appreciate guys. you. We appreciate all the work that you're doing and uh, congratulations on your victory lap. Um, we'll, we'll have you on again. You're actually, this, this is the second time. Second time. Yeah. He's not, a, time. he's not, a, he's not a three for, we'll do a yeah. three for yeah. the, the three for In the later. spring. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Right. Thanks. God right. bless. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care.